0: Welcome to the Classic City Church Podcast. For up to date information and ways to get involved, please visit us at classiccity.org. Welcome, everybody. We are continuing our summer series called Profiles, where we're looking at different individuals featured in the Bible and kind of looking at their life their faith, their challenges, and the journeys God has taken them on to kind of learn what it can teach us about our faith and our relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we've looked at some different individuals. We looked at, I believe, Moses and Job, Peter, uh, lots of different individuals from the Old Testament through the New Testament. And today we're going to be looking at the Apostle John. This is not John the Baptist, who was kind of a forerunner of Jesus, uh, prophet of sorts that came before him. And we're not going to be looking at John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter and wrote the gospel of Mark. We're looking at John the Apostle, who was one of the 12 original disciples of Jesus Christ. And we're just going to kind of explore his journey that God took him on, um, how the Holy Spirit's kind of worked in his life, how his relationship with Jesus evolved and developed over time, and, and kind of see what that can inform us about our lives and our faith And kind of learn from his experiences and when you're doing a profile on different individuals in the bible some of them are easier some of them like moses pretty much his life entire life story is captured in the first few books of the bible uh you've got king david right his his life is captured in a couple of books of the bible and you even have stories about his great grandparents and things like that so we have a lot of information but in the new testament i mean The central focus is on Jesus. He's kind of the main focus there. He's the main character of the New Testament. And a lot of the other characters or individuals uh, in the New Testament, you kind of have to piecemeal. You kind of have to be a detective and go into different books and to different writers and kind of look at some little stories here and there and try to piece together some similar themes. And thankfully, John was actually one of the more prolific writers in the New Testament. So we have some books written by him. And oftentimes when you're reading and studying someone's own writings, it can tell you stuff about them, even if they're not necessarily talking directly about themselves in that writing. And so we're going to do a little detective work today and kind of try to piece what we can together about John the Apostle. The reason I kind of felt led and really gravitated towards him is I, um, he really loves to emphasize and focus on the more mysterious spiritual realities of what's going on. And I think a great example is that. Go look at the first chapter of every gospel. Mark, Matthew, and Luke are very dry and very straight to the point about Jesus' birth and his origins and, and whose family he came from. Very just like basic things because Jesus was a man and, you know, he had a very similar uh, entrance into this world as many of us did and, and uh, family and things of that nature. But when you read the first chapter of John's gospel, he kind of peers through the curtain and kind of shows you the more mysterious spiritual aspect of what's going on. That it wasn't just a baby being born, but it was God, the light of the world, entering into the darkness of the world. It's really powerful imagery and, and, and really uh, cool in that way. I, I find, I think I gravitate towards that because I'm the kind of guy who loves Star Wars, right? I love the Force, I love fantasy stuff. When I played uh, fantasy games with my friends, I always wanted to be the wizard you know, so I think there's something about John's writings that really appealed to me in that way, and maybe some other nerds here, uh, you you also find that appeal in uh, in John's writings in particular. So, like I said, we're going to do a little detective work, and I want to start off with almost just doing like a quick bio of what we know about him, just kind of laying out kind of the facts there. And then we'll look at a couple of stories and see what those really show us about his personality and then look at some of his writings to show hopefully how he um, changed, evolved, matured, and in some ways how he stayed the same, right? Um, God, when he changes us, when we get redeemed, it's not just the, the, the slate is wiped clean. Your personality stays the same. Many of your passions and and things that you enjoy and and that you care about stay the same, but God redeems those things and uses them in unique and special ways in your own personal ministry in the way that you impact the world and those around you. And so hopefully we'll see how that's very true for John and how that can be very true for us too. So our our quick bio, what we know about John before he meets Jesus, before he hits the scene. Pretty much we just know this. He's the son of a fisherman, so he grew up a fisherman, did a lot of fishing. And he did it in the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Galilee, which is where most of Jesus' disciples come from and and kind of the the region in which Jesus uh, grew up himself. All right, so he's a fisherman. He has a brother named James. And James is going to come up a few times for us. And James and John, and then you might have heard of Simon Peter. Elizabeth preached on him earlier in the summer. And his brother, Andrew. Those four guys were the first four disciples of Jesus. So we know where John came from. We know his family. His father, him and his brother are called the sons of Zebedee. Zebedee, maybe a family name, maybe his father's name. But we know what region he came from. We know who his his family was. And we know his profession. That's actually a lot of information. Like if you were around during John's time period, you could go track down his family. You could go ask someone, is this John guy real? Um, And so we actually know a good, decent bit for the historical time period um, that he's in. Uh, back then, I don't know if you really would call there was a middle class, and so he'd be probably considered, you know, um, lower middle, if you, if you will, in regards to that working class. Um, and so the fact that we actually know so much about him, and he's just this kind of working class guy, and kind of what you might consider a bit of a podunk kind of region of Israel, it's, it's incredible that we know so much about him, but obviously that's because of his close proximity to Jesus Christ most pivotal figure in all of history. That's what we know. But then as a disciple, we know a lot more, right? We have the recordings of the Gospels, and John shows up a decent bit in those Gospels, let alone he also wrote one of the Gospels. And as a disciple, we know that though Jesus had many disciples, he had more than just 12. He had a lot of people who followed him and listened to him. He had men and women who were disciples under him. But then he had his core 12 disciples, right? And we've heard a lot about all of them. But then even within that core 12, he had another core three that were like his closest buds. And and that group was made up of Peter, James, and John. So John and his brother, they were in that core group right there along with Peter. Peter, who very much was quite a leader among the disciples and, and went on to be quite the leader in the church. And so that was a core three. And what do we mean by, how do we know they were core three? because oftentimes when Jesus would go off to a private place to do something kind of secretive that he wasn't quite ready to show other people or reveal to other people, he would bring these three along with him, but he wouldn't bring the other disciples. Time in again, he'd bring these three, Peter, James, and John. When he went to a a young lady's house who had passed away, and he went into her bedroom, and Jesus rose this little girl from the dead. He wasn't quite ready for everyone to see that I can bring people back to life. He wasn't quite ready for that. Why exactly? We don't know, but we know Jesus had a very specific timeline, and he was not ready. But he brought Peter, James, and John. So John was there for certain special miracles that Jesus wasn't ready to reveal to others. Um, at one point, Jesus goes up on a mountain, and he experienced what's called the transfiguration, which is this supernatural divine moment where, a very, uh, in a very special way, God reveals that Jesus is in fact his son. And it's this very like, special, powerful, supernatural moment. Peter, James, and John are all very like, scared and blown away by this moment. And John got to go up on that mountain and be a part of that special event. Jesus' last night that he was alive, he went privately to the Garden of Gethsemane to kind of weep and cry and pray. And in this very private and personal and scary time for Jesus, he invited this core three to be with him. And so John wasn't just one of the 12, like he was part of this core three, a very intimate group with Jesus. But I would go on to say even further than that, within that core three, that John had a very special relationship with Jesus and a very, a very close relationship with Jesus. And we'll explore a few of those things, but even in John's own gospel, he doesn't refer to himself as John or the apostle. He refers to himself over and over as the disciple whom Jesus loved right? Like, he's pretty, uh, pretty bold and proud. Like, uh, <clears throat> you don't need my name because you know who I am. I'm the one whom Jesus loved, you know? And of course, Jesus loved all of them, and Jesus loves all of us. But there was something special about the relationship, and John was confident in that, and he knew that there was something special. We're going to look at a couple of stories that shows certain decisions Jesus made that says yes, something was special about his relationship with John, which is, I think, it's, it's really incredible. And John really embraces that. He's very confident in that, um, that relationship that he had with Jesus in that way. Well, Jesus dies, Jesus resurrects, Jesus ascends back to heaven, the Holy Spirit comes down and fills the apostles, and the apostles are now the ones leading the charge of spreading the gospel, expanding the church, expanding the kingdom of God. And John is one of those original 12 apostles. But even among those apostles, Peter, James, the brother of Jesus, different James, not the other James, and John were considered the three pillars of the church leadership at that time in the early church. We know this because... Paul, in fact, says before he began to go on his missionary journeys and preach the gospel, he said, first, I need to go to Jerusalem, and I need to meet with Peter, James, and John, and I need to share with them what gospel I'm going to be preaching, because I want to make sure the gospel I preach is the true gospel. I don't want to have to come back and, and learn that everything I said was wrong and have to go back out there and be like, oh, you remember when I said that? Let me correct everything.'" Growing up, when I would come home and do math problems, I would oftentimes, like, do a little bit of a problem and then go show my mom or, you know, at, at school, go show the teacher and be like, did I, did I get that right? Okay, okay. And then I'd go back and I'd do a little bit and then I'd come back and be like, did I get this right? Because I didn't want to have to redo. I wanted to make sure I was getting it right as I went along. And, and Paul is very much doing the same thing. And so he's looking at Peter, James, and John as these authority in the church, these authority of what the true gospel is. And that's where we that get that term of the three main pillars. Paul calls them that in one of his letters. He says that John is one of the three main pillars of the church. And so we see even as a disciple, he had a very close relationship with Jesus. But even after um, Jesus had ascended in the early church, John had a very special and significant role in the church. Um, and then as, as kind of time goes on, the disciples are all killed and martyred for their faith and sharing the gospel over and over and over. But tradition holds that actually John never was martyred, that he actually um, at one point gets exiled on an island for a very long time and then eventually gets released from that island because the guy who put him on the island passed away because John lived so long, he outlived the guy. And so he's let off the island and that John eventually ministered but then died of natural causes. That it's believed he is the only disciple of Jesus's and the only apostle that died of natural causes. Now, that's just kind of church tradition. That's not necessarily what the Bible says. But we actually can look at a story where Jesus seems to hint at and, and kind of prophesy that actually maybe there is a special, uh, a special um, aspect to that, uh, a, a truth to that, that John um, seemed to have lived for a significant long time. As I mentioned also, John was quite the prolific writer in the New Testament. He wrote the Gospel of John, uh, my favorite, personally my favorite gospel. Um, He wrote 1st and 2nd and 3rd John, three different letters that he wrote to uh, some churches. And then he wrote the Book of Revelation, right? Really significant um, piece of work, and it's the last book written and added to the canon of the New Testament. And so he, he, you know quite prolific. I I believe he's, um, after Luke and Paul, he's the third, he's written the third most um, that's contained in the New Testament. Um, In his writings, I kind of pulled three main themes that I thought were significant. Um, As I mentioned earlier in his writings, he likes to depict spiritual realities, kind of the mysterious aspects of Jesus and of the Christian faith and um, he likes to use and communicate this through using very powerful symbolic imagery. He likes to deal with light and dark. I mentioned Star Wars earlier, right? The light side, of the dark side. He likes to um, use these kind of very um, bombastic and powerful type of language, almost prophetic at times in the way that he kind of describes things. And it sets him apart very uniquely from a lot of the other New Testament writers in this kind of way. Another aspect is Um, John spends a significant amount of time defending a very important and central truth to our faith, which is that Jesus Christ is 100% fully man and 100% fully God. He is the divine walking in flesh, and he is both of those things at one time. And that was an important theme for John to kind of hit at and defend and describe. I think it's very much why uh, the Gospel of John starts the way it does, in describing this very supernatural reality of God walking in, um, in flesh. Some of the early church fathers um, who who Were discipled under John um, in their own writings, talk about this, how he was defending some of these lies that were creeping up in his writings. Um, In his writings, he was defending these lies kind of creeping up in the church, these Gnostic teachings that were going on. And so that's another big theme for Paul and um, for John. And then um, finally, uh, John hits on this idea a lot love, that our faith is expressed through love. If you want to see your faith alive and active, you want to know you really have put your faith in Jesus Christ, the way you can um, know that is through manifesting it through love, love being truly lived out. So that's my little biography, real quick. That was your little Wikipedia page on um, John. Uh, Hopefully, though, um, you'll see I've kind of sprinkled in a few little themes that we're actually going to touch on as we start to look at some of the stories and some of the writings of John. And kind of um, get a, a whole picture of who he is and, and what it speaks to us today. So let's look at a couple of those stories. Um, honestly, the most dense area we're going to look at is in 1 John, um, that letter. So if you have a Bible open, you can turn there. But I am going to be looking at some of the um, some stories in the Gospels, and it's a it's a bit of a a, a heavy um, a, a heavy sermon of lots of Scripture. Really, really dense. Something to chew on. Anyways, um, the first story I want to look at, I want to look at just how bold John is. He's quite the bold uh, disciple. He says some things and does some things where you're like, whoa, you, you thought that was a smart idea to say to Jesus? <laughs> uh, Peter oftentimes kind of gets criticized for putting his foot in his mouth, for just kind of saying like, kind of dumb things. <laughs> where John kind of gets criticized more for saying things where you're just, you're kind of like that was your reaction to that. Like, that was an overreaction, my man. You need to chill out. Um, And so, we're going to be looking at Mark 10. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 through 45. And this is a fun little story of just how bold he is, um, but also I think it shows how early on how selfish he was, how much he really didn't get so many of Jesus's core teachings. Should be up on the screen. Starting in verse 35, it says this, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Has anyone have, like, a little kid come up to you and say, Hey, before I ask, just tell me you're going to say yes. <laughs> like, I, 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 these are young men saying this right now. You, you would think they're smart in this. And, of course, Jesus is smart. He's not going to say, Sure thing, whatever you ask, I'll do. He says, All right, what do you want me to do for you? They replied, "Let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory." Jesus says, "You don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink, or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with?" Uh, growing up, you know, my dad would be like, "Oh, I got to run to the store, or oh, I'm, I got to go outside. I got to work on the cars. I got to go do this. I got to do this," and I'd be like, "Ooh, can I come? Can I come?" And he knows, I'm a little kid, I'm probably gonna create problems, I'm gonna create. And so he'd say to me, all right, you can come, but if you come, you've gotta actually be helpful. You can't distract me, you can't make messes, you can't make problems. If you come, you actually gotta be helpful. And I feel like Jesus is kinda like saying like, okay, you, you, wanna, you wanna be a leader in my kingdom? You, want, you wanna have some kind of authority in my kingdom? Sure, well you're gonna have to drink of my cup and be baptized in baptism. I'm going to be baptized. And what he's talking about there is, he's not talking about an actual, like, you know, little sippy cup of something. He's talking about suffering. He's talking about getting on your hands and knees and serving others. He's talking about really doing the work, and it's not just about being, like, put a badge on you and say, all right, you're in charge now. You've got, you know, you've got all the power. You've got all the authority. So Jesus is kind of hinting, you know, ex- explaining this, I don't think they get it because the next thing they said is, we can, they answered. They don't know what they're saying. <laughs> and so Jesus kind of warns them, you, you think you can. So Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. So obviously we see a glimpse here of just how bold and how um, kind of selfish and, and just kind of... Um, you know, wild John can kind of be, and uh, interestingly enough, next verse says, when the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. They became angry at, like, you went behind our backs, and you asked Jesus if you could sit at his right hand, like, what gives you the right, Uh, you know, also, John is believed to be probably the youngest of all disciples, so you can imagine, like, they're like, uh, get in line, buddy, all right, you haven't been around that long, um and so they're upset and i don't get the impression especially because of what jesus says next i don't get the impression that they're upset like how unselfish of you brother you should be more considerate that's not where they're going what they're thinking is hold up i better i better Get my act together because they're going to get ahead in line. And I don't want that to happen. I want to be the guy standing next to Jesus. I want to be sitting at his right hand. Because this is Jesus, what Jesus says. He calls them all together. He's like, all right, let's get the family together. All the brothers are bickering. And he said, You know that those who regard, are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, everyone's upset with them, and they've been going behind each other's backs, trying to get ahead, and Jesus is like, I see what's going on here, and y'all are all missing the point. You're all missing the point, point. and so he obviously lectures them. And so, I think we can see here, obviously, a little good example of the selfishness of um, John. This next story, I kind of want to show you just how brash he can be, how fierce, but also how kind of judgmental that he can be. He's very quick to make assumptions about people and jump to conclusions and, and, and be very judgmental in this way. And so we're going to look at Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, and just look at some verses right after 49. It says this, Master, said John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he is not one of us. Jesus says, do not stop him, for whoever is not against you is for you. Can you hear, maybe I was putting a little tone in there, but can you hear just how proud John seems? Like, he doesn't think he did anything wrong when he comes up to Jesus. Like, it's not like he did it and then he's like, well, I'm not gonna tell Jesus what I did. No, he marches up to Jesus like, you're gonna be so proud of me. This guy who was healing people and, you know, you know uh, kicking out demons in your name, I gave him the boot. I got rid of that guy. Aren't you proud of me? Like, he's, he's, he's so confident that he made the right decision here and, and when he was fiercely judgmental about this. And Jesus is like, actually, no, you need to chill out because he was doing something good and he was doing it in my name. I, you know, he's not hurting anything, so I, I think it's fine. Uh, the story kind of continues because John does something, once again, very brash, very judgmental. It says in verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resu- <laughs> resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Little background, Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other, a lot of conflict there. Hey, you're coming through our village, please don't, just go around, go to a different village, we don't want to deal with any conflict. I won't get into why, but just know they don't really like each other. So when the disciples, James and John, saw this, that they weren't welcomed in this village, they asked, Lord do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? But Jesus turned and rebuked them, and he said to the disciples, let's just go to another village. Uh, (laughs) John and James thought, this is a great idea. Let's let's go ask Jesus if we can just call down fire. One, you have to admire, he's a true believer. He believes that if Jesus wants fire to rain down on people, he can make it happen. He's a true believer. Like, you got to at least give John credit there right he he's not doubting if jesus could do that he fully believes he can and he thinks he should so <laughs> you just have to imagine like jesus is like what that's your response they want us to not come by because of you know a little animosity like dude we need i need you to calm down <laughs> And this is why, I didn't mention this earlier, but James and John get the nickname from Jesus, Sons of Thunder, which personally I think sounds like a great band name. It sounds pretty rock and roll. It sounds really fun, right? I'd love to be called a son of thunder. But Jesus meant it more as a slight, like you're a little hot-headed, you're, you're, you're kind of quick on the whole wrath of God thing, and we need to um, take a step back. So I hope showing you here, like, this was John the disciple. This is the kind of guy he was. He was fierce. He was angry. He was quick. He wanted to, to, you know, rain fire down. He wanted to kick people out to the curb, right? This is is the John we're dealing with. This is the guy who ends up becoming a leader in the church. Um, So this is the kind of guy we're looking at here. But also, I had mentioned earlier that John has a unique and special close relationship. So on the one hand, Jesus is like, dude, you're driving me nuts with this stuff, all right? But on the other hand, John is this really close personal friend and and brother to Jesus. And like I mentioned earlier, he's been a part of these very secretive private moments like These special miracles, raising the little girl from the dead, the transfiguration, those last prayers in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there's this really powerful and interesting small little moment that takes place towards the end of Jesus' life as he's hanging on the cross. And we'll look at that. This is John's own writing. This is John's story. This is John's story to tell, and, and he wants to share this and put this in the gospel. And it's in John 19, verse 25 through 27. It says this Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved, remember that's John, standing nearby, he said to her, Woman, here is your son. And to the disciple he said, Here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. How powerful and significant! that of all Jesus' disciples, he saw John and said, I want you to care for my mother. Bef- you know, Jesus is the oldest, right? He's the oldest in his family, right? He's, he's born to a virgin, so he's probably the oldest, if I had to guess, all right? So, he's the oldest. It is his responsibility to take care, first and foremost, it is his responsibility to take care of his parents, oldest huh yeah yeah you're yeah something to think about it's your it's your first and foremost your responsibility and jesus could have looked at his siblings right and said hey you guys i'm look at me i'm about to die y'all need to take care of our mother but instead he looked to john and he said you this hot-headed right this fierce this angry this brash kid he says i need you to take care of my mother Something really powerful and special about that. And then we look at another story, a couple of chapters after this one, in John's own gospel. And and it tells this really special kind of plan that Jesus seems to have for John. Give you a little background uh, previously to the part we're going to read. Peter's having this really personal and intense conversation with Jesus. See, previously, Peter had denied Jesus three times when Jesus was first arrested. That can, uh, that can create some animosity, some, some division in a relationship. It can really break a relationship. And so Jesus is reestablishing Peter as his disciple, as a future leader in the church, and kind of recommissioning him and, and kind of calling him back to his, his role. And in this, he's kind of establishing what kind of ministry Peter's going to have, but also what kind of death he's going to end up having that's going to lead to uh, the glory of God. And so, as Peter and Jesus are walking and having this really personal, really intense conversation, Peter looks over his shoulder, and he actually sees John just kind of trailing along nearby, kind of close by, probably um, close enough that Peter's fairly confident that John's listening in on this very personal conversation he's having with Jesus. And you can imagine, maybe Peter felt a little upset about that, a little jealous, like, hey, man, let me have my private moment with Jesus. And so... Um, That's kind of where we pick up here in chapter 21, verse 19. Jesus said all of this to indicate the kind of death which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. But Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved, John, was following them. This is the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? What about John? And Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? (laughs) You can tell based on that last little comment there that like John's like, I get it. I've lived a long age. You know, all the other apostles, they've already died and I'm still alive. But Jesus did not say I was going to live forever, okay? Let's all, you know, calm down. <laughs> it's a funny little note. He wanted to slide in there for everybody. But let's look at this really quick. This is, this is kind of uh, really interesting. Jesus, Jesus doesn't seem to have a problem that John was tagging along. He doesn't turn around and rebuke John for being like, whoa, buddy, a little privacy. He doesn't say that. Je- Jesus is like, I don't care. I don't care if he hears all this. And Peter, you don't need to care either, right? I think you know we can all be a little bit like Peter, like come on, God. Like I feel like you've given this person a message. or I feel like you've given this person a calling, or you've done this for this person. Where's where's my answer? And you know sometimes God's answer is like, hold on, you know, be patient. I don't got anything for you right now. So um, let's let's wait on that. And I feel like that's kind of what He's trying to say to Peter right here. And and that's really not my point. I I don't want to really focus on. what's going on with Peter here. But what is interesting is Jesus doesn't seem to care that John is following along and listening. Apparently, Jesus thinks maybe he's got some special plans for John, and he thinks the other disciples don't need to worry about his special plans for John. I've got special things going on for John. In the parentheses, John kind of reminds us of an interesting little detail that at the Last Supper, John sat by Jesus. They reclined and leaned against one another, really comfortable and familiar and a special bond there as they kind of you know stayed really close to each other. And even at the Last Supper, when the sensitive topic of someone here is gonna betray me, it was really only John who felt comfortable enough to say, Jesus, who's gonna betray you? He felt like, well, I'm not, you know, like, so so tell me who's gonna who's gonna betray you? And then Jesus actually answers him, right? He says, you know, the person who's gonna dip this in cup cup's the one. So he actually, you know, John's like, Oh, you wanna know? I'll tell you, John. You can, To me, when I look at that, there's something special about that relationship. Jesus hands the responsibility of his mother over to John. Jesus has this special interaction, even when he's among all the other disciples at his last supper. Um, and he apparently has special plans for him that he thinks Peter has no business knowing. And so, it's a very kind of interesting and kind of special relationship there. And you can see why John so confidently in his gospel is like the disciple whom Jesus loved. That's who I am. That's my identity. That's who I'm confident I am. I don't, I don't need to worry about if that bothers you. I don't need to worry about if someone's going to judge me for that or think differently. of Matt. That's all I care about is I have a relationship with Jesus, and he loves me, and that's who I am. And so I want to kind of wrap this all up by looking at a couple of passages of John's own letters that he wrote much later in his life, you know, as a, as a disciple, as an apostle, and kind of see the way in which God shaped John, really changed John, and kind of used who he already was, even with all his foibles and his... his, um, his uh, his way, the ways in which he's lacking and the ways in which he stumbles, all of those things, how Jesus even redeems those things and still uses the unique person that John is, that bold and brash person that he is, but also that person who has this really unique um, and close relationship with um, John and with Jesus and so let's uh yeah I mentioned we're going to be in first John for these sections and first thing we're going to look at is a passage that goes from First John chapter 1 from verse 5 into chapter 2. And the first thing I want us to uh, notice about John is he is confident in who God called him to be. Like, John does not seem to waver in that. He is the one whom Jesus loves, he is the disciple whom Jesus loves. John doesn't need to be known in his written down gospel as John or the apostle or anything else. He just needs to be known as the one whom Jesus loves. And he is confident about that. He's not confident in himself. It's not about anything he's done. He doesn't think that he is special because he proved himself or, or did anything extraordinary. In fact, every time he tried to prove himself, Jesus rebuked him, right? Any time he tried to show Jesus just how zealous he could be and, and how passionate he could be, each time he tried to take that step, Jesus rebuked that. He put that away. And so John is confident, but not in who he has built himself to be, but instead It's all about the love that Jesus has for him. He's confident in who Jesus has called him to be. He's confident in who Jesus wants him to be. And he's not ashamed to find his identity in this thing. He's not ashamed that I don't need to be known as the guy who called down fire. I don't need to be known as the guy who was brave and bold and said this or did this. I don't need to be known as the guy who was martyred and and who died and sacrificed himself for Jesus. I just need to be known as the one whom Jesus loved. He's not better than anyone, he's just loved. He's not worse than anyone, he's just loved. And God has changed John through this love and this grace. In this passage we're about to read, I hope you see that no longer is it about John wanting to sit at the right hand of Jesus. It's no longer about him trying to get ahead in line of anybody else. It's no longer about proving himself and how zealous he is or putting people in their place. His identity is no longer trying to be found in those things, but instead it's being established as the one who is saved and loved by Christ. And so I I really think in this passage we're about to read, John is speaking to this question of who we all believe we are. John knows who he believes that he is. He is confident of that. And we can ask ourselves, like, who do we believe we are? Where do we take our identity from? Because I think this is like a big issue and a big topic in our world today, but I think it's honestly been an issue for humanity since the beginning of time. Where do you find your identity? The place you find your identity is going to determine how you see the world around you, how you treat others, how you treat yourself, how you interact, um, and how your relationship with God grows and evolves. So let's look at this. 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 this is the message we have heard from him declares and declared to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins... He is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. This is the guy who wanted to call down fire on a village who just wouldn't host them for a day. This is that same guy. This is the same guy who wanted to kick people out because they weren't part of his crew, even though they were healing people in the name of Jesus Christ. All right, This is that same brash guy. From this passage, we know who God is. We're told over and over who Jesus is. He's light. He's the advocate. He's the righteous one. He's the atoning sacrifice. But John also spends just as much time focusing on the question of who are you? Who do you claim to be? He repeats that over and over. If we claim to be this, or if we claim to be that, he's very much focused on this. Are we claiming to be sinners? Are we claiming to be righteous? Are we liars? Are we redeemed? Are we in need of an advocate? What he's getting at is where do you find your identity? How does that affect how you live? John shows over and over, at this point in his life, when he's writing this gospel and he's reflecting on Jesus' ministry and, and his time under discipleship of Jesus, he knows who he claims to be now. He is the one whom Jesus loves. Therefore, he's confident in that. And that informs how he lives, how he interacts with the world what his priorities are, what his motivations are now. That's something we need to know too. That's something that can inform how we see the world, how we interact with the world, what our motivations are, and what our goals are. Do we know that we're saved by God and that we're loved by Jesus the same way that John does? The second and final thing that I think we kind of see through John's evolution and transformation through the Holy Spirit and under Jesus, is that John's still the same guy. If you go read his letters, I mentioned that he, he talks about a lot of supernatural, spiritual things, but he's also still this very kind of bold individual, right? He's still very brash at times even. He, he's, he doesn't necessarily pull punches. He's loving and he's graceful, but he'll get right to it. You can still, personally, when I read his letters, I can still see that same guy who was that silly, foolish disciple under John, I mean, under Jesus. Not that he's getting caught up in the same sin, not that he's still the same selfish person or the same self-righteous person, not that he's any of those things, but it's still his personality. He's still that same guy, except it's been redeemed with these new motivations and these new goals. That's the John that I still see. That's the John who I, I think God is still using. I think sometimes we imagine that, oh, when you're saved by Jesus, I guess everything just gets wiped clean, right? We say that, wiped clean. We're talking about sin though, right? But I think sometimes people imagine just your whole personality gets wiped clean, right? There's, there's nothing left. Um, but I think in John's life we see that no, Jesus actually redeems those things. And he starts to use those quirks about your personality and those, those different types of things that get you passionate and riled up and that get you focused. Um, God will still use, but he can use them for his kingdom and he can use them in loving and graceful ways. Um, you know, he wanted, John wanted to acknowledge this and he wanted to, to see, um, see this um, or he wanted Jesus to acknowledge this, and he wanted Jesus to see this in him. He wanted to see how bold he could be, how confident he could be. Um, you know, he comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, Jesus, we rebuffed this guy, right? We kicked him out. Isn't that cool, Jesus? Jesus rebukes him, right? You can see he's wanting to prove himself. John wants to prove himself to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, you want us to call down fire? And each time Jesus rebukes this, um, but John still has, even in his, his writings now, he still has this very powerful, very bold language that he uses to kind of communicate. But now instead, it's communicating, instead of judgment, it's communicating love and mercy. Instead of um, I, uh, uh, trying to kick people out and exclude people, it's about including people. I'm just gonna wrap up everything with um, a couple of verses from 1 John chapter 4. Uh, this is verse 17 through 11 and 16 through 19. John says this, remember, the same John who once was very bold and brash, um, but but, um, fierce and judgmental. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we ought to love one another. And so we know and rely on the love of God that he has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that, We will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. There's so many little themes weaved in this passage that we just read that I think speak to who John used to be. He talks about how love casts out fear, that there's no room for fear, that fear has to do with punishment which is what John in the Gospels was all about when he was under Jesus. He was all about striking fear into people and, and punishing people. You don't want to host us in your village? We'll rain down fire. But now John says that his identity and his motivation start with one simple truth that we can have confidence on, that we're loved by God. Even before we loved him, even before we did, made a move, Right? Even when John was stumbling and making dumb decisions, even when we stumble and make dumb decisions, God still loved us. Which, when God loves us, that leads us to love. No longer are John's motivations about proving himself to somebody. No longer are his methods about bold judgment and bold fear. But now it's about bold sacrifice and bold love. God doesn't just change us, he redeems our qualities and he uses them for his glory. When you read John's letters and you read Revelation, it's clear that John's still very bold, very fierce, but so much has changed. The motivations and the goals there are completely different. They're now about redeeming people, not punishing them. But through the grace of God, John's boldness and fierceness come out in the way that he now loves others. It makes me think of fire, the difference between a warm comfort comfort that comes from fire versus a hot, stinging burn that can come from fire. Both still burning, but one is a comfort, it's safety, it's good, and one is painful, and it hurts, and it's dangerous. Those are the kind of ways in which John has grown and changed. And so there's so much, I think, that this speaks to ourselves, so much that this shows us about ourselves, what it means to grow as believers and to change. John wants us to see one simple thing, that who you are is loved by God. And I think John believes that one simple thing can take everything about you, your personality, your quirks, your passions, and he can change that into something that can be used for God's kingdom and for God's glory we need to be confident in that identity, in that identity alone. John could have so many things he could look to to find his identity in. He could be the longest living apostle, right? He could be the, uh, the guy who got stranded on the island. <laughs> he could be the one who wrote Revelation. He could be uh, the third uh, pillar of the early church. There's so much he could be proud of and he could point to, but Ultimately, none of the things he's done, none of the things that people might associate with him is where he finds who he is. It's not who he thinks of himself. He's simply as the one loved by Christ. And so, let us also be confident in that identity that we are ones loved by Christ. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder and this truth In the same way that John is bold and confident, that he is loved by you, I pray that we would know and experience this morning, this week, throughout our lives that we are loved, cared for, saved by you and you alone. There's so many things distracting us, so many things pulling our attention, so many things we are insecure about and that we search for our identity in. But Lord, I pray that we would come back to you, that we would know you and you alone is the place where we can find our identity and through it find life, find salvation, find purpose, find meaning, and find confidence. And so Lord, I pray that you would continue to show us that and speak that to us through your spirit and through your word.